This is episode 39, Bill and Ted Face the Music. I'm your host, Michael S. Preston Esquire, and welcome to a most bodacious episode of Third Time's a Charm. Today, we will be discussing the most excellent Bill and Ted Face the Music with my most non-heinous, unofficial co-host, Brian Late Night Rodriguez from High School Slumber Party and first-time guest, Matt Delhauer. You can hear the three of us talk about the first movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, over on High School Slumber Party, and hear me talk even more about Face the Music with Joey over on Keanu Club, all out right now as you're listening to this. It's a Bill and Ted crossover for the nexus of reality itself on our network. I'm so excited to talk about this movie, but first, I just want to double-thank my guests for shelling out their hard-earned save bucks to rent or buy this on demand, and thanks again to the team behind Bill & Ted for releasing this at home as well as in theaters. So now, without any further ado, grab your instruments, a historical figure, and hold on to history, because we're about to face the music. third time's a charm this is a most excellent episode the very first weekend of release episode for third time's a charm as uh, time and space will allow let me get right to it we're talking about bill and ted face the music joining me today so this is sort of a continuation of a crossover event going on on the network welcoming back from his show high school slumber party where we talked the original bill and ted's excellent adventure my unofficial co-host the iconic Brian Rodriguez. Welcome. Happy to be here as always, Mike. I'm happy to continue our conversation on Bill and Ted. Station, my man. Also joining <laughs> us today from that very conversation to continue the talk, a first-time guest here at Third Time's a Charm, the Ginger Geek himself from Ginger Geek Podcast. Please welcome Matt Delhauer. Welcome, Matt. Hello, gentlemen. I'm glad we are talking again in less than a week. This has been a Bill and Ted-filled week. I watched the first one for Brian's show, watched the second one just for fun, and I watched this one twice. Let's just get right into it. I'm just going to start with a real quick plot summary. You can hear the panic in my voice as you do over on Hanks for the Memories while I try and go through these as quickly <laughs> as possible. But here we go. So it's 25 years later. Bill and Ted have yet to write the song that will save space, time, the universe, and everything that we know about existence. They have to go to couples therapy with their wives, and they screw that up pretty royally. They are on the verge of divorce when they are visited from the future by Rufus's daughter, Kelly. She brings them in front of the Grand Tribunal. They are told that if they do not write the song tonight within like 75 minutes existence as we know it is going to unravel and that is indeed what is happening from the start historical figures from the past and the present are switching places in time and space screwing up everything that we know Bill and Ted have the bright idea that they will travel into the future and steal the song from themselves after they have written it, and then travel back to the past and perform it live. In the meantime, their daughters decide that they need to help their fathers, and they travel back in time to assemble a band of historic proportions. Bill and Ted have a very tumultuous trip through time in the future as they constantly run into conniving versions of themselves who are being petty and sort of alternate cuts of the Bill and Ted that we know, sort of the mirror-mirror versions of themselves. It gets worse and worse as they travel further and further into the future, but their daughters are having much more success as they go through the past, assembling the ultimate band to save the universe. Unfortunately, the people in the future may have misread the prophecy and think that Bill and Ted have to die. So they send a killer robot after Bill and Ted named Dennis McCoy. Dennis accidentally kills Ted's father, Bill and Ted's daughters, their entire band, and then suffering the grief of being such a failure, attempts to kill himself, and Bill and Ted also perish in the event. Everyone is sent to hell where they are reunited, they get death, 
back on their side to join the ultimate band. Then they travel into the present, alive once more to perform the ultimate song and save the universe, which they do. The end. We're going to get way more into it, but what's nice now is we don't have to sort of go into our pasts about the franchise. We can listen to Brian's episode of that show. Let's just get some general thoughts offhand before we get deep into it. Matt, starting with you, first-time guest, how did you feel about this? What did you think upon watching Bill and Ted face the music? The first time watching through it, it, uh, it was just, its as anyone would have expected, it's very much a nostalgia trip. I was actually very impressed at how easily both Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves were able to kind of flip these characters back on after almost 30 years of not playing them. The story, I feel, it's kind of like a loving mashup of the first two movies with its own story kind of sprinkled in on top of that. We get the concept of the younger versions of themselves played essentially by their daughters traveling into the past to collect historical figures for something they feel is important. We have a killer robot from the future set out to murder Bill and Ted thinking it will help change the world. Everybody has a trip to hell. And then by the end, we have this kind of lovely concept that is built on the idea of of throughout all of their lives they assumed that the two of them were supposed to be the ones that were going to save the world and really what it was was it was their daughters who are the ones that end up creating the song that saves the universe. It looks back on the old ones, it has a lot of fun along the way, but it also has this kind of really nice message that of all its own about how your legacy may not always be what you have created, but maybe what you have helped create through others, whether it be your progeny or whoever. I had a lot of those same sentiments while I was watching this movie, and I was also thinking at the same time, that should bother me because they're doing essentially a soft reboot. This is parts one and two mashed up, but it's also got a new twist. But I'm loving it. I just feel like the execution is great. The tone, the vibe is great. And I think enough time has passed that if you haven't seen the first two movies, you're still going to be cool. You could just watch this and it's like, you know, the first two, kind of just like in one little tight package. But it's also, I like it because this is something that like part threes do from time to time. I feel like they should do it more. And it feels like they're also saying like, we could stop here if we wanted to. This is sort of a culmination of something. A goal has been achieved. We've written ourselves out of a corner. I thought it came off a lot better than I was expecting to. And I was really happy about that. Brian, how about yourself? What were you feeling about this? Oh yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Uh, Mike, we talk a lot on the show, like what makes a good third film and what doesn't. And it's not always the same thing. But if you're going to do a nostalgia piece, which obviously Obviously, they had to here, right? Um, and this wasn't going to be like a reboot where obviously it has the lead actors in it. So if you're going to do this, I'm so happy that they incorporated so much Bogus Journey stuff in here. Because we see a lot too, Mike. These recent reboots, or not reboots, recent like third or fourth films, they kind of just like circle back to the first one sometimes and kind of ignore the less popular second one but no both of these films are kind of equally represented here is there fan service sure but you know what for an hour and a half movie i'm all for it i loved it it was great to see the new generation it was great to see old generation i loved you know seeing missy again or people like deacon it didn't try to do too much in my mind either yes in the spirit of bill and ted excellent adventure and bogus journey there was a lot of convolutedness but that's part of the joke but didn't try to do too much of overstating the importance of these films or making it suddenly more dramatic than it should be. I I thought the tone was perfect. I agree. I feel like also a lot of people may not have seen Bogus Journey as much as they've seen Excellent Adventure, perhaps. And so this was a nice way of sort of inserting a lot of that story and those ideas into the new one, because you know people are going to see this one. And it also kind of feels like they took the best of both worlds to me. It's not like they're retreading the bad stuff and trying to make it better. It's kind of like we're playing off what we know worked well and also maybe trying to do ideas we didn't have the opportunity to do in the first one because time traveling for musicians to form the ultimate band would have been great, but there's no way Bill and Ted are failing music class. You know, so you can't do that in the first movie. (laughs) And in the second movie, you know, I feel like they wanted to get to the bottom of Bill and Ted facing themselves and their worst fears about themselves with the evil robot usses. And here we have the opportunity, I think, with some of my favorite stuff, when they're time traveling into the future, they're meeting their alternate versions of themselves, what they possibly may become, seeing sort of the not-so-excellent or the bogus in themselves and (laughs) having to come to terms with that. And it just seems that they didn't really have time or... Or maybe it wasn't on their mind so much with the second one. 
Um, and here we just get to, you know, explore a lot of those issues, which I think is some of the best stuff. It's very indicative of the characters as well, that with the, the main driving plot for them is, we need to try and write this song to save reality, but there's no way we can possibly do it ourselves in a matter of like 75 minutes. So let's just go into the future, after it's already been written, let's take it from ourselves, and then we'll just bring it back and we'll use it. Which means they're already playing on the idea of they're trying to like create shortcuts for themselves, mm-hmm that they don't have to do work. And when they then go into the future and they meet these future versions of themselves who are these down and out losers who hate them for the fact that like you guys never wrote the song so now our lives are terrible the thing Bill and Ted never recognize is there's still a future though which means the song exists but they're being told by themselves you didn't write it yeah that's some of my favorite stuff because they you know I feel like maybe the easy thing to do would be to go into the past and confront yourself and try to change yourself that way but to face your future self is uh, a lot more interesting and it might sort of break time travel rules in a way, but they explain later on, all I need to know is that there's some kind of quantum entanglement. So this could be very much them traveling to future different alternate realities, not even per se the future that they go back to, right? And San mm-hmm. Dimas and perform the song. So I love that whole concept too, that out there, they need to sort of uh, harmonize with every version of themselves throughout the entire quantum realm or something. And just everything needs to be united together. When they visit each other at the old folks home at the end, they're not being sort of conniving to their end, but to the end of fixing things. You can sort of say like, oh, look, like in the end, yeah, they did the right thing. And I just really appreciated how that time loop and the causality of them meeting themselves escalated and then resolved itself pretty well. Well, and the, the thing that I actually was wondering they might possibly do with the film was as they were bringing up this this concept of it being, okay, well, there's alternate timelines based on events that are going to occur. I actually was wondering, like, are we going to end up doing an ending where we're going to have, like, infinite versions of Bill and Ted from different timelines coming, like, coming together to create the song? And we didn't do that, which is fine. But it was one of those things for a moment. I was like... Wait, are they going to, like, bring in, like, CGI versions of them from the first two movies and stuff for this? Because that, that would be pretty cool. But they didn't. But it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it, shows that, it shows that there was, there was a, a level of, luckily, unpredictability to a movie that many probably would think would be very paint-by-numbers. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, hour and a half. Love it. You know, <laughs> no, it, but it's true. How many times, Mike, even in a comedy, when it's the third film and this many years passed, they give us two hours or two hours and a half, you know, and it's just like, come on. But and they got they got a lot in it an hour and a half. This does not play like your general mainstream comedy over the last, like, ten years, I'd say. This is not sort of Will Ferrell running around screaming as loud as possible. This is not improvised, apatow, whatever, screaming you lines from behind the camera. Like, this is some well-thought-out, well-scripted, time-taken-with extremely well-performed stuff. I love the way that this movie plays. I think it's hilarious, and while all three are unpredictable, this is the most unpredictable of the three, and of, like, most movies I've seen in recent history. Like, it takes so many unexpected twists and turns. Let's start going through it a little bit more from the start, and we can sort of pick on our more favorite moments, things we didn't really like. I think the beginning is pretty interesting, because as far as I'm concerned, the movie's sort of on this, it's like on volume for the first 15 minutes. Like, it's super played serious and subdued. Bill and Ted really don't feel like they're fitting in. And then when the time traveling starts, it's just like, you don't know what's going to happen next. So it did a really good job of kind of subduing me, and then saying, all right, hold on, you have no idea where you're going and so what do you guys think about the opening Deacon's Wedding to Missy Ted's dad being his own son all this stuff I enjoyed it uh, look I, I love seeing Deacon I, I told you guys that last time I liked seeing Missy even though it's like convoluted and super silly I love how Bill and Ted like react to it it's just so like it's just been a part of their lives for, for this amount of time that Missy's movement within their family together and they're so bonded as like a family essentially they're you know they're a family of four here like not counting the kids i mean like you know them and the two wives have lived together this entire time and then when that expanded family is united it's not weird to them at all but we actually open right with like a preview of what's going to happen essentially the voiceover and i mean this is my first start like okay i'm so glad we did the podcast on high school slumber party because you saw a lot of images there and throughout like wasn't this 
one of their original ideas, like the original writers, to have, I think, literally Babe Ruth be put in colonial times. And not, not that they went back and directly got them out of it, but I liked how they used some of their original ideas to generate what the story ends up being here. Uh, there's a bunch of others that we mentioned last time that they like were kind of using in the background of historical figures in wrong time periods. Oh, yes. They definitely, I think that George Washington and Babe Ruth were two that they really wanted to have in the first movie. The opening little montage to kind of get you caught up with the last two movies. It's quick. It makes sense. It shows that the one of the great things about the Bill and Ted films is like, yeah, they're convoluted, but at the same time, you don't have to think too hard, man. We're not <laughs> here to, to try and blow your mind all that much. I, I will say that the reveal that, that Missy was marrying Deacon, already one of the first big laughs I gave, because <laughs> your, your immediate thought is like, of fucking course she's marrying Deacon. <laughs> It's this tiny little character thing that is so fitting to Deacon from what little you know of him from the first movie. It was like, Deacon always just had this kind of like such a little suck-up dickhead thing to him that to make it that Deacon followed in his dad's footsteps to join the police department, you're like, yeah, you would. He's the ultimate, his dad was sorry for what he asked for because he grew up to be like him so much, he married his wife, you know? like it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's subtle, but it's great. The little line she gives when he calls her Kissy Missy, and she goes, Ew, don't do that. Your dad used to call me that. And he goes, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I forgot about that little intro dealie we get. I, I like that. I like how much that comes back sort of in the third act. I wish a lot of that stuff popped up a little more maybe throughout the movie. I think it's a testament to the film itself how much they're trying to cram in, and it plays okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, for the amount that it's there, it's great later when Kid Cudi is displaced and he joins the crew. I thought that was pretty funny. But I also got to tell you, this song at the wedding... I don't hate it. I mean, at least the way it starts, I'm kind of trying to get into it. The reaction I had to it was, I get that we're trying to make it that it's like, oh, it's so weird because they've got theremin and throat singing and just random instruments. He pulls out a bagpipe. I'm like, yeah, but think of it this way, man. This is the first time we've seen Bill and Ted play since the second movie where, like, they actually have rhythm. It's true. So it's true. there's that. We've seen, like, they've come out with a bunch of records, right? So we know that they can play. And this is just like, well, they've studied so much. They're, they can play any instrument at this point. They've sort of got Brian Wilson problem where it's like, where do we stop? Just keep adding this or like change it to that or like get me the most obscure thing you could find it's really interesting the way that they do the character concept of like because they're trying to find a song that is going to unite everybody their latest idea is what if we just have a song that we put everything in now anything anyone could like is in this song yeah, and his dad's little journey about believing them, where he's like kind of catching the audience up to speed, where it's like, hey, and we, you know, in the reality, like no one believes like this fantastic idea. Like, you know, everyone must just have assumed that death was like someone in kiss makeup the whole time. <laughs> it's one of the things I find really funny about like looking back at the end of Bogus Journey when you're like, yeah, but how could anyone doubt the fact that they had like the Grim Reaper and these tiny little aliens in the band? But it's also like, yeah, but everybody thought it was like a major stage show. So no one believed that any of this was real it was just like oh yeah the robots and the guy from the future and all the stage like effects and everything were great and then they played a song and it was fun yeah but i also think of like the aliens kind of remind me a little of guar and like the robots remind me of like the beastie boy video at, around that time and stuff so yeah. you know it's like all theatrics that the crowd of the mtv generation are sort of like into in part two so it's like oh yeah it's just like this they put on this most triumphant show and that's how they won the battle can they really put their money where their mouth is and apparently they could once, and then Death just ran off with fame. Oh yeah, I can't wait till we get to Death. Gets a little upstaged at one point with Death 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting, this whole stuff with the couple's therapy. Because at first I was like, man, they are really going to kind of ground us so far underground with like realism and how Bill and Ted like really don't function well in the real world and all that stuff. It was a kind of a, a relief to find out later that it's sort of going to be like a, a at least a one-time reoccurring joke where they have revisit themselves in therapy. How did you guys feel about that? This whole sort of like opening act, the feel of it. I mean, I just mentioned that I felt like it, it, it was sort of trying to lay low a little more and be less fantastical, certainly more than the rest of the movie gets. Yeah, it works you back into it though. And, and that's fine by me like but in terms of this therapy scene if you're gonna use Jillian Bell like this is 
where she's excels at so much. You know, this is kind of a stock character for her at this point, but I'm okay with it. It's pretty awesome, pretty unique. And again, it, Mike, you hit the nail on the head. I was afraid that this movie was going to be like that. Like, Bill and Ted face the music. They didn't become famous. This is reality. And the whole time is just, yes, there were going to be some time travel elements, but my worst case scenario was just going to be the kind of this comedy grounded in reality where we're looking back so much and like, look at these losers, you know? And maybe in the end, they tri- they're triumphant, but no, we get the good kind of convoluted even like uh, here you know because like you said when they're returning back and returning back to this again i'm gonna say this a lot today but i thought it was great that's really it is there's a lot of ways that this movie could have been done that could have gone wrong and there's a lot of ways that they could have tried to modernize the comedy that they would use in bill and ted and i think one of the things that i really like about this is that there's a lot in modern comedy that tends to be very mean-spirited at times and the thing that i like so much about this is that doesn't ever come across in these movies like there is so much earnest whimsy even when you have the moments with bill and ted in couples therapy trying to have everyone explain to them like couples therapy doesn't mean you both show up here with your wives to talk about (laughs) what all of your problems are as two couples and it's it's this wonderful thing of like even though we kind of recognize that yeah bill and ted have always been kind of dummies even if they are the butt of the joke we're not like making fun of them for being the butt of the joke it's nice too because they don't feel like they're being bullied like they are actually going to try and change like ted even mentions you know trying to grow up by selling the guitar taking some serious steps which is nice and sobering like you really do feel for these two characters they're at pretty much the lowest point they can get and i like that that isn't at the bottom of a bottle yet for ted that's as mean as this movie really gets as ted becomes like an alcoholic in the future and bill loses his hair those are my favorite moments when they run back into each other because they're just playing off each other so incredibly well for not being in front of each other while they're filming it and the different versions of bill and ted they just go all out with this just had so much energy and just never missed a step and it was just like so good a big part of it that helps is number one they have been very good friends since they made bill and ted back in 87 so like there is just chemistry between the two of them that will never not be there but again it's also for not having played these characters in near 30 years like this is instantaneously them right back into it they didn't lose a step absolutely just this chemistry throughout this franchise is almost unmatched. Mike, I don't want to bring this up, but Beverly Hills Cop 3, I'm going to bring it up again. Eddie Murphy's mailing it in. That was like another fear of mine that, not the way Alex Winter, but maybe, because you've seen it on, on Keanu Club, and I'm sure you talk about there, that, you know, maybe Keanu would mail this in, and maybe he was doing it as a favor to his buddy Alex Winter. That didn't come across here, and I was so happy for that as well. Absolutely. There's an energy behind him that you, that until, like, he started doing John Wick again, like, I almost thought that he was going to retire because it just seemed like he was done like he just there was nothing left to explore and to re-explore Ted I just see the life behind his eyes in this performance and he's having such a great time and he's not worried about like looking too stupid or goofy or anything and yeah him and Alex Winter you definitely feel like they are best buds. How did you guys feel about Billy and Thea, Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne? I'd never seen Bridget Lundy Payne before but Samara Weaving is, is like not unrecognized but she looks like five years younger than she is in real life in other movies. How did you guys feel about them, their characters, their chemistry, and what they're up to in this movie? I guess I would say initially I was I was a little surprised by the characters because while I knew that they were going to be playing a bit on the idea of like, okay, they're, they're sort of a, a new generation Bill and Ted. For the longest time, I had this thought or this fear that they were going to build a story in which it was like the daughters don't believe them about any of this and they've grown up with like, you know, their crazy dad who think they're going to save the world and it was going to be one of those things of like they're going to have to get dragged into the fantastical world that was Bill and Ted's adventures and everything like that. So I was surprised to see that we basically start off with them just like 100% we believe you. We are all completely behind you and your music and we are essentially, I won't say carbon copies, but definitely far more similar to Bill and Ted than I would have imagined. There are times where them playing like the Bill and Ted stereotype works and there are times where it felt like it, it fell flat a little bit. But, I mean, none of it was enough for me to dislike the characters or feel like the actresses didn't do well in it. It felt like there was a little bit where maybe they could have been directed like, eh, that that feels like you're treading on farce territory. I agree, but I think it was, you know, probably intentional. I think, you know, one of the convoluted layers is supposed to be visiting their future selves, but their future selves was running under their nose all along because it was 
their daughters. I would have been more bothered, and I know they wouldn't do this, but uh, if Bill and Ted kind of just like cameoed at the beginning, and then we had these like stereotypes of Bill and Ted essentially, like not through 90% of the movie somehow, then the joke would have gotten a little bit tired with me. Again, I, I thought it was in just enough that I didn't really care so much about that. And I really do like both these actors a lot. I've been a big Samara Weaving fan for the last four weeks since I covered The Babysitter. Bridget Lundy Payne, they're great. This is someone that I've wanted to be in films for a little bit, so I'm glad to see them get their break here. I will also say, I guess, the fear that I would have had, especially because I remember I I watched the interview that they did on the the San Diego online Comic-Con thing that they did. They had a a Face the Music panel where they had both of uh, these actors as well as Alex and and Keanu on it, and they they had talked about how, like, oh, you know, we did our best to try and, like, watch the first movies and kind of recognize some of Alex and Keanu's mannerisms and, and speech patterns and, like, these little things to try and incorporate those into our character without fully just being impersonations. And that was the thing that I feared was that these daughter characters were essentially going to just become like the live action Bill and Ted TV show that Fox had, where it was just two random doofy teenagers who were doing Bill and Ted impressions. I agree with all this. Like, I actually thought going into the movie where it was coming out that they were going to be in it way, way less. Like, I had no idea that they were going to be, you know, until started watching it, I, I didn't have any inclination that they would be the ones to sort of be the actual saviors or the actual band that saves the world. I like how they're so similar. I think there's something sort of about time and the repeating nature of time, the idea that they are sort of clones of their parents in a lot of ways. The one thing I'd say about them is I wish they kind of leaned more into the idea that they're sort of these brainiacs in the way that Bill and Ted were portrayed as sort of, you know, dummies, I think it could have been, you know, maybe an extra step they would have taken with them to solidify them a little bit more as their own characters is if they actually uh, said some of those things Kid Cudi said later, as opposed to just being knowledgeable about music in general, although they know every single thing about music. They're not these glasses-pushing, pencil-pocket nerds. They're these eccentric musical artists and everything, and so that was nice about it too. I will say I think it's sort of refreshing to recognize that this is the first of the three movies that gave the princesses some agency in what they were doing because the first movie they literally were there as like oh you'll meet the princesses and you'll fall in love and then they just kind of are gifted to Bill and Ted at the end of the movie of like hey by the way you guys um you stop from having your band broken up so here have these women we're teenagers what you're just handing us girls what are we going to do and the second movie it was like okay so we've all been i guess living together in some fashion for a little while i'm assuming the princesses had to be given their own apartment somewhere and it was like okay we're going to get married but then the major motivation of the second movie was like well we have to get back and make sure that these robots don't hurt our girlfriends and they kind of just played damsel in distress for most of it so this is the first one where it's like okay they're initiating the idea of we want to go to couples therapy because we feel like your constant attempt to try and create the song that unites the world is now a major strain on us and our relationships with you and we then see this whole this whole little side story about like the future versions of the princesses coming back in time to take their their past selves on a tour of like we're going to search all of space and time to find a reality in which we are happy and not unbelievably depressed and lonely being with Bill and Ted. That needs to be the next movie if they do anything, is the spinoff with the princesses, taking the princesses through all of reality. I also agree that it's almost not that all of time and space is going to end, it's that when they go to the future, they find out that their wives left them. Like, that is what really kills them, and and is like, we gotta fix that, dudes. Like, that's what's important, ultimately. It's like, yeah, we'll get the song, too, but, like, our wives, man, like, how could we let this happen? So it is great that even when they're not on screen, which I wish, you know, even still want that whole movie about them going around that like a lot of the um, agency is built around their needs and stuff and Bill and Ted trying to fulfill that. It was interesting that they were obviously recast. I mean, I think they were even recast in the second one, right? Yeah, that's almost the joke, is that Ted's dad and Missy are the only two original aside from Bill and Ted, I believe. Yeah, I mean, and of course Hollywood has to like age them down, not substantially, but I'm pretty sure Diane Franklin's at least 15 years older than the person who replaces her. But that's Hollywood. Otherwise... Yes, the princesses in this movie, I believe, are at least 10 years younger than Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. 
Otherwise, though, I have to say, we talked about it on High School Slumber Party, how, and, and I know we'll get into the historical figures and stuff, but how it was very Eurocentric and a very white film. And this one, a lot more 2020, a lot more inclusive. Again, I know we'll talk about the historical figures, but overall, I was happy with the casting decisions. Even uh, Bridget Lundy Payne, non-binary actor, that's awesome. Um, a lot of people of color in this film. Again, it was a welcome sign in 2020 that they weren't like, no, we're going to do everything we did last time. Appreciated that. Yeah, they made some really good choices, I felt, with the historical figures in this. But speaking of casting, Christian Shaw turns up as daughter of Rufus, and she takes them all to the future because they haven't written a song yet. They're kind of pissed. We find out that Holland Taylor, who we talked about a long time ago, <laughs> Brian, you were there with Joey and I in, in Iceland for, for one season, but Bosom Buddies, great to see Holland Taylor here as the boss again. I was there for both seasons, okay? Yes, you were. <laughs> I'm saying that Iceland was only there for one season. Brian okay. stuck it out. Don't downplay that. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he was there for every single episode. He saw the Ernie Hudson guest appearance, the end of season two and everything. The future looks a lot like heaven from the second movie. I thought that was a nice kind of little visual callback because we're not going to get to actual heaven here. We get the very respectful I felt George Carlin tribute and the idea that Rufus's family has sort of gone on to rule the future. I liked that very much when that reveal came. How are you dudes feeling about their trip to the future and their whole idea that they're going to go start stealing the song? I guess we sort of talked a little bit about that already, that they're going to steal the song from themselves, but the depiction of the future. I would say I do find it very interesting to see throughout the three movies, the future has had a glow up every time. We started off in like some sort of geodesic dome. We then moved on to them having Bill and Ted University, the giant neon foam padding and everything like that. To now just being like, uh, essentially it looks like, yeah, it looks like it's, a, it's like a society in the sky now. I loved the, the look of it. I, I also loved the little bit of them going through the uh, circuits of time and seeing that the circuits of time are like out of whack. But I think, I think my favorite things about it, number one is the fact that I really love the fact they named Kristen Shaw's character Kelly after George Carlin's real life daughter. Oh, okay. That's excellent. And the other was, I loved them turning the old phone booth into a museum piece that would have a hologram of Rufus describing the phone booth and his trip back to the 1980s. Yeah, that was nice. Like, there was talk that they were even going to try and do a full CGI Rufus, George Carlin lookalike Star Wars kind of thing, but it wasn't in the budget, and they figured that might have been just too much, just in general, and this was just a much nicer tribute. I also love that when they ha when they walk away and they're told, like, all right, come on, we have to go meet the council, Ted waves to the hologram of Rufus as he walks away. <laughs> I also recognize that the future is, you know, glammed up a bit every film, but time is passing. You know, this is 20 years or whatever in the future. In the future. You know what I mean. In the future's future. Trends have changed, which is cool because trends do change like that. And maybe in the future, trends change every year because that's how fast time goes. Who knows? This is the film of the trilogy that has the most by far, I would say, the most non-Bill and Ted scenes, right? Like, we get a lot of cutaways that don't involve Bill and Ted. Yeah, I would say so. And I like that about it. It really expanded the universe and built open the world. And, and I like when a movie can trust itself not to have to have the main characters in every scene. Because, especially in comedies, I think that's what drags it down a lot. Because you don't get to explore the secondary characters enough to care about them. So that when they're part of a joke or the butt of a joke or whatever they die that you have a reaction to them whatsoever so we know who bill and ted are we've been made aware that they haven't really changed all that much right like this is probably the one movie where they're gonna change the most uh i'd say like their epiphany and everything at the end and and all that especially contrary to their various future selves the way that they've handled things so i quite like that about this movie. You know, it's also easy because we know about who these historical figures are for the most part. All that other stuff, you know, sort of helps keep it together without Bill and Ted in the movie for me. Yeah, the first two movies, like, in Excellent Adventure, I think the only real cutaways that they had was they would follow Deacon and, and Napoleon for a while, and then there was a couple times where they were just, like, checking in at the history reports to show that, like, oh, they're really running out of time. In the second movie, the anytime they had a cutaway, it was a cutaway to evil Bill and Ted. So it was just, like, they were always there, whether it was them or their evil robot versions of them. Yeah, and I like about this is when we do cut back to Bill and Ted, it, we get double 
double doses every time and these crazy alternate versions of themselves in the future. Did you guys have a favorite version of who they become along the timeline? Definitely David Grohl's house. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that. It was that moment that had my favorite joke in probably the movie where when they they go to confront them like you guys didn't write the greatest song ever dave grohl did and they're like well yeah but you're gonna bring it back and you're gonna fix our lives and bill pulls a gun on them he goes oh come on dude you don't have to pull a gun on us he goes yeah i do look what happens when i don't and he puts the gun down and they immediately try to run away that leads to i think maybe my favorite moment or one of my top favorite moments is when they're trying to confuse their other selves so they just put buckets on their heads we have to do something that even we don't remember (laughs) and they're like i'm totally confused dude and it worked i just love how like the the alternate sounds are like damn they're gonna do the thing he's like oh i thought they would have forgotten about that i hope joey gets excited watching this uh shout out to joey lewandowski because all throughout keanu club he had heard that keanu reeves is fat in one of the movies that we were gonna watch later on in one of his roles that he put on a lot of weight for one of the movies and well in chain reaction he is a little bit bigger because of a back injury this is great because we see fat keanu when he lets that gut out during that whole sequence too also also just the idea of future ted who is an alcoholic being told to slow down with the drinking then drinking even more out of spite for being told what to do it was a little jarring the later scene when they're I guess, prison, Bill and Ted. Is that a song? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can confirm that is not a song. I mean, Brian, I even thought it was jarring when they first run into themselves just two years in the future and they try to ditch themselves. I'm like, something is going on here. I just love the fact that they have, like, different aesthetics for every time they run into themselves. Like, when they see themselves playing the uh, bingo night or whatever it was, they're dressed like they're grunge rockers from the, the, like, early 90s. Then they do the whole, like, glammed-out who thing for when they're pretending that they own Dave Grohl's house. And then finally it's just, like, muscled up and tatted all over the place once they're in prison because they, quote-unquote, got left with the rap for breaking into Dave Grohl's house. But you did. You're the ones who (laughs) broke into Dave Grohl's house. They probably pinned them murder of Ted's dad on them too somehow, right? Like having been disintegrated by the robot at that point. Yeah, so also the futurist sent this robot back in time to kill Bill and Ted because the prophecy may mean Bill and Ted have to die for everything to happen. Robot's got a name, Dennis Caleb McCoy. That's his name. We come to find out. Robot definitely steals the show for me. Like I was saying earlier, I think he's sort of Death 2.0. He even looks like a robotic version of Death. This actor, Anthony Kerrigan, who I don't know if you guys have seen Barry. He steals the show in Barry, which is hard to do because everybody is great in that show. And I know when he was initially cast, a lot of people were wondering if he was going to play Death because they thought, was there a possibility they would recast it because obviously Death can't age and Bill Sadler has very obviously aged in the past 30 years. Luckily, it, it shows that Matheson and Solomon and everyone were like, no, it's that was that was Bill Sadler's role. He's going to play that again. We love him. I think he works perfectly. I think he's got a lot of great character development. I love that he starts out as just this killer Terminator from the future, but the more he keeps screwing up, the more self-conscious and human he becomes to the point in which he can no longer kill Bill and Ted, so he attempts suicide. I mean, he successfully kills himself. One of the other great jokes is, how is there a robot in hell? Like, just the idea that a robot can die and then go to the afterlife is amazing. I do appreciate that. Also, at the same time, it's like, I mean, if the SWAT van could get sent to hell? (laughs) The scene where Ted's dad is falling through hell and we see William Sadler's death reappear for the first time and he just points at him, my heart just was like, oh my god, this is amazing. I also do find it interesting that in the Bill and Ted universe, no matter who dies, you immediately go to hell. Well, I mean, yeah, I figured... You know, we're all going to hell, right? And that was like one of the things I had to laugh at. I was like, well, in the first movie, they became ghosts, and then they got banished to hell because they were they were haunting people. In this one, you just immediately go to hell when you die. It doesn't matter if you're their daughters who are fairly innocent in their lives. You're in hell now. Yeah, every, all the historical figures, too. Well, you know, they created music, and music is evil, I guess. True. Good point. So let's touch on Billy and Thea's little time travel adventure of their own in this movie. How do you guys feel about the band that they assembled? I I think my favorite moment is when Hendrix and Mozart are battling. And also the moment when I realized that Hendrix and Mozart dressed alike. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Good call. Well, I think the other thing that I find 
was such a great little callback to just the, the time travel rules of the Bill and Ted universe was when they go to try and recruit Louis Armstrong. And so they walk in and they just hand him a smartphone that shows Jimi Hendrix playing music. They're like, that's a guy who really likes your music. Louis Armstrong is in no, like, if he kind of like looks at it weirdly for a second, but he doesn't seem at all phased by the idea of a cell phone or a video on a cell phone, just like immediately is like, wow, this is great. Guys, you got to check this out. And he's he's automatically on board. He's the Billy the Kid of this group, where it's just like he is handling time travel so well. He is probably my favorite. They do have this thing where, well, I was originally like, wait a minute. Wasn't Jimi Hendrix and Louis Armstrong, like, didn't they... Uh, weren't they living at the same time, you know? But then they they say it. So I was like, okay, at least they acknowledge it, right? (laughs) That's a great joke right there, too. It's like, why didn't you just go get 60-year-old Louis Armstrong? They're like, well we've got this Louis Armstrong. <laughs> and also the fact that they very obviously had that argument with like, I told you we should have gotten an older Louis Armstrong. Yeah, no, that was appreciated. I'm like, okay, good. Like, you know, you have some awareness of that. But yeah, this band is pretty cool because again, it's not just like some white Eurocentric group of people. It's amazing. And, you know, like Ling Lun is a real deep cut to Chinese mythology. I had to look up if that was a real person and, and Ling Lu ends up being a woman which is great there's that caveman person cave woman right grong i think is what what they addressed them as was grong that was an excellent touch was like just the history of music being told through the famous musicians as well or the fact that they once they picked up mozart mozart became like the recruiter for the band i will say tiny little historical inaccuracy way too old to be mozart oh true good call I'm pretty sure the story for Mozart was that he was essentially constantly working on music because he was like almost driven by his father in like a taskmaster sort of fashion of like, my son's going to be famous for his music, so you're going to keep writing music. I knew he died young, but yeah, Mozart died at 35. He just wore a gray powdered wig. That's why he looked old. Oh, I thought he died younger, actually. Maybe not. To be fair, Mozart in his prime, which is what they were showing, is much younger. Like, I think his last 10 years... Isn't he, like, 16? Yeah, he was, like, destitute his last 10 years, at least, and, like, not making music and died unknown. Prime Mozart? Like, it's not like they got Mozart on his deathbed here, so I think you're absolutely right. Way too old to be Mozart. Funny enough, talking about uh, overbearing parents, while I'm jumping around in the timeline and everything, I really love the interactions that they have with Ted's dad, and just, like, especially when you get to the points where, like, when they're talking at the wedding, and he's, you know, giving them the whole, like, you know, it's time to give up this fantasy. You never went traveling through time. You never went through uh, to heaven and hell. And I love how Bill is getting incessant about it, because it's obvious, like, we've had this argument for decades now. And he's just like, you know, you never went to heaven and hell. And in the background, Bill's like, yes, we did. So when they finally meet up in hell and he's like, oh my God, you're all here. This means everything you said was true. I'm so sorry. And like, there's that reconciliation between him and Ted and Bill's like, thanks, Mr. Logan. He's like, I'm not talking to you, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I love it. I love the whole reunion in hell. But before we get to death, I, like, I need to talk a little bit more about Dennis because Dennis is like this crazy wild card in the whole movie. He's like the dice of unpredictability almost where whether he's malfunctioning or that the time stream is course correcting itself to do this unintentionally his change from cold-hearted robot to full of heart and joy and just wanting to make people happy i feel like that is almost like the thesis of this film put away the guns put away everyone trying to kill each other and just pick up the guitars dance and try and make music his shift when they get to hell just reinvigorated me so much more because i was like in one end i was like oh we're going back to hell not that it won't be fun or interesting but this is also like having dennis along for the ride for the rest of the movie really added some sort of x factor Oh, yeah. Because we kept, you know, we have said we, we, we've made several references to him sort of being like essentially how death was in Bogus Journey. To see this, essentially this killer who is also very self-conscious and very insecure and trying really, really hard to get Bill and Ted to like him, despite the fact that his job was strictly to kill them. So when they get to hell and he's just like, you know, all right, they're they're looking around like, "Uh, you know, do you see where the girls are? No, I don't see them, dude. And then he just kind of like puts himself into frame and goes, yeah, I don't see them, dudes. It's like, okay, don't do that. Or or even because uh, once you get to hell, there's that, that cameo from uh, Matheson and Solomon when they're playing the two demons. It's just the, hmm, robot in hell. That's weird. Never seen that before. 
the whole attitude of the movie really comes together, I feel like, at this moment. And it's like, yeah, like this is... I think they even said it before, where Kelly was like, before you perform the concert, anything is possible. So, like... I was like, okay, anything is possible in this movie. And I really feel like that spirit comes together in hell. And they try to recruit Death because he is, I mean, the ultimate bassist, right? Like, I love that idea that, like, there's no questioning his talent. It's just his attitude. <laughs> it's so band-like, right? It's so band-like. Well, it's like a yep. marriage, right? Like, I've heard that a lot from bands. Is like, some bands stay together longer than a marriage or get back together and reunite and all this stuff. And it's like, can you imagine that relationship? And that's not just with one person. That's with, like, three or four people sometimes, you know? And you got to keep all that together and going and everybody, you know, on the same page. It's just great, and I love how Death, his references are sort of just a catch-me-up of the last 20 years of references that have been like memes or go-tos, like Talk to the Hand and all that kind of shit. I also just love the subtle ridiculousness of Death built himself a recording studio in hell. Yeah, all of his memorabilia is hilarious. I love how they go through his actual history with the band, with the restraining order, trying to steal the name, the 40-minute bass solos. It was like watching VH1. It was amazing. Well, it, the funny thing about it is, is I was I was even saying while I was watching it, is they're like, you know, you took 40-minute bass solos. No one else could even play it. He's like, they were the highlight of your shows. I'm like... <laughs> You guys are not famous anymore. You really don't have proof that he's wrong. <laughs> the idea of suing him because he tried to steal the name Wild Stallions is one of my favorite little tidbits they throw in. I love when he says he says something about the restraining order when they show up. I was like, damn, like they they basically went through every stage of breaking up with a band. <laughs> what did your restraining order lapse? Am I too close to you? Gets right in Bill's face. Is this too close? It's so good. It's such a way. Again, I, I said this at the beginning, but the fact that they did not ignore Bogus Journey, they embrace Bogus Journey made me so happy. Yeah. While they do make the reference at one point with uh, Kit Cuddy giving them the station call before he disappears, I am going to say I'm a little disappointed that we don't get any reference to the actual alien of station. And I was really hoping, even if it was just going to be like in the background as like just set dressing, I was really hoping the good robot uses would show up somewhere. Well, it's funny because when we see the little tribute to Carlin's Rufus, I thought for sure we were going to find out like what happened to Denomalous, just even if it's just a throwaway line. Hearing Station, at least, was like a great little shout out. I think it's kind of funny is that they make the reference during the, the wedding when she marries Deacon, that they're welcoming her back into the family. And I think that's actually a call out to the end credits of Bogus Journey, where there is a moment that it claims that Denomalous was going to be marrying Missy. <laughs> I forgot about that. I would have loved to have gotten references to the actual alien version of Station. But also, like we were saying earlier, this is a movie that if you have not seen Bogus Journey, which honestly, a lot of people haven't. I had a lot of friends of mine who like over the past week were like, yeah, I'm actually, I've never seen the second Bill and Ted movie. I'm going to check it out before the third one comes out. And I always tell them that my truth, you know, please do. It's, it's absolutely my favorite Bill and Ted movie. But beware, it is a little unapproachable because it gets very, very weird. And I feel like to make this like a movie where it's like either have seen only the first Bill and Ted or maybe you haven't seen any Bill and Ted, just be like, oh yeah, by the way, there's a couple of weird aliens that uh, built <laughs> robots of them. That's a thing that happened in one of these. Regarding Station, like he may not be here, but we do have some amazing makeup effects, right? And I feel like Station as a creation was a most bodacious puppet. And there were two little people in the two little stations and then the, you know, the giant one when they combined and a lot of great makeup effects and stuff. And then when in this movie, future versions of Bill and Ted's makeup are just like incredible. I'm so glad for as much polish as the digital effects are. There's a lot of great makeup effects still in the history of this franchise. And I think that maybe, you know, while we do not get that most gigantic ass of stations like we do at least get some really great makeup effects laced throughout this movie why is alex winter so good at playing old people so matt have you seen the movie freaked by any chance i have not by the time that came on my radar there was no possible way i could find the movie it's hard to find. Because I think your question would be answered a little more there. He loves playing with makeup. Not only is like, it great to see Keanu on board, you could tell he, like, I don't feel like he's so much used to wearing old age makeup, but Alex Winter is like getting every last inch out of that stuff. 
Oh, yeah, and that's the thing, is it's, like, in Bogus Journey, when he plays his own grandmother in his personal hell. It's that moment where you're just like, you're like, why is Alex Winter so good at playing an old woman? And then you see this, and you're like, oh, no, it's just Alex Winter loves playing old people in prosthetics. He loves it, and the, or just people in prosthetics, honestly. And I'm most happy for him with this film. Again, Keanu has this thing, and we all know his great career, and he was happy doing this. But Alex Winter is just, again, su- seems like such a cool guy. We, on High School Slumber Party, we talked that... He's a great documentary filmmaker, but he loves doing this stuff with makeup, and he loves playing these kind of characters, and he just seems so happy throughout that. I was happy for it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could feel the energy. Like, you could definitely feel that this set was electric and that everyone really was behind the material and wanted to be there, and I I had not seen his show The Idiot Box, which was an MTV show in the very early days, but apparently there's a lot of, like, experimental animation and makeup effects in that as well. I just hope, you know, like, he is such a good actor, and whether it be by choice and going more into the documentary realm and out of the spotlight, like, I hope, if he wants it, that he gets the recognition and stuff to do more acting because he is amazing like put him in men in black under a lot of makeup and make him you know will smith's next partner or whoever like that would be incredible like put him in a i want to see what him and taika waititi could do together like holy shit give him a marvel movie i don't know what to do but you know what i mean like he just feels like in the spirit of someone like james gunn who will like give you the unexpected Oh no, I think that's absolutely true. Is I think I think he has the background, he has the comedic capability that you could hand Alex Winter like Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and I think he would he would knock it out of the park. The movie comes extra alive at certain moments and I think one of them is definitely this in this moment when they're all on the bus together and, and they're flying back up to earth and they're hitting all the fucking dead bodies that are falling along the way it's just one of the most sort of metal moments of the <laughs> oh, movie yeah. which is perfectly underset by the, uh, having a song by the, the heavy metal band Mastodon titled Rufus Lives from the soundtrack no playing Oh. As they uh, rise up back to Earth. But also, I just love, like, there's such great little, like, moments of comedy, no matter where you are in this movie. Like, when they're they're like, all right, great, we're all making it out of hell again. Who knows where MP46 is? And then, like, Kid Cudi starts rattling off, like, this quantum physics theory about, like, well, anything can be anywhere if you really think about it. (laughs) Like, there's just a pause. And he goes, who knows where MP46 is? (laughs) Yeah, Ted has a moment later where he's like, no offense, Kid Cudi, but we got, like, three minutes left. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, I love hearing Keanu Reeves in the Ted voice saying Kid Cudi. (laughs) Secondly, it's also like when they they get to like the big big moment towards the end where it's like, oh, we have to have everybody playing the song at the same time in order for like it to unite the world. And they're they're going throughout time and space handing out instruments. And there's the point where Ted hands instruments to Deacon and Missy on the bridge. He's like, hey, what's going on, guys? I'm basically an infinite being now. So that's cool. And just disappears. (laughs) Even the tiny little references of like, oh, we have to dial a number for infinite and they're like why don't you just press the infinity button on the keypad which we have seen since the first movie and we don't ever pay attention to i love it that just goes to the screenwriters probably and like the lore they originally had developed with all their original drafts and or maybe it was an unintentional thing i'm wondering if it was just a set design thing that then like 30 years later they're like let's make it a plot point either way these guys are so smart Maybe if there's one thing they could have, and I think they were getting to it, but they maybe could have introduced a little earlier is the idea of what they do at the end by splitting into infinite versions. Like, I think it's great. It's very climactic, but it is also like we're introducing this very important thing, exposition, like way, way, way late in the end of the movie. Maybe just a scene earlier would have been cool just so we get maybe a little more of them handing out instruments or something. But I don't know. How how do you guys feel when they get to the freeway? I, I like the concept that they're jamming in a traffic jam. I don't know if that was intentional, if that was supposed to be a joke, but they arrive back on Earth. How do you feel about the ultimate climactic concert here that we get? It's definitely a thing where if you look at it, you're like, oh, they just so happen to have a truck filled with gear from Guitar Center on this same bridge. But it's like, yeah, but you know what? At this point in the movie you're in, Yes, they do. They absolutely do. <laughs> if you're going if you're going to start being like shitty about it now, it's way too late, man. 
I also thought it was going to just be like, well, what do we do? How do we have instruments? It's just like, bam. Oh, crap. Okay. It's like, after we do this, dude, like, we set up all the instruments, and so for now... <laughs> So we got to remember. That was the thing I thought they were going to do is when they started talking about we have to get instruments to everybody everywhere in all timelines within the next four minutes. I thought it was going to be like, all right, after the concert, that's when we take the phone booth and we time travel to every single place in everywhere just before this happens. So everybody has instruments. This was the only movie that never played the we go back and we set it up later game. I mean, I got to be real. Like I started just full-blown like sobbing by the end of this movie like I had lost it and they were like you know tears of joy though I mean I had more of a reaction to this than than Force Awakens you know like Force Awakens I'm sitting there and like okay but with this I'm like they did it like I'm so happy with what they did with this so yeah I mean like it really got to me but I, I just really liked how heartfelt and and warm it made me feel yeah and they did this thing where of course they're not gonna invent the perfect song for us here in the movie like externally but they did this thing where the song was pretty cool but they kind of rationalized it like no no no, it's not about what music they were actually playing it's that everyone was playing along with them and it's this nice beautiful world unity moment and all the planets and everything's aligned and yeah it was emotional for sure like and it was super cool that i didn't think this was a trilogy before they announced this movie and they've kind of been able to close a trilogy here um if they want to come back with more movies i you know they can just have standalones or do something else but the thing we heard that they would do early on in the first film they finally truly accomplish now yeah what i love so much about the way that they end this movie is for the longest time the idea was these two guys are going to write a song and that song is going to be so amazing everyone's going to love it and the world is going to change how they think how they feel and how they act based on hearing this song and as time goes on it becomes more and more of a i mean granted they're ridiculous movies but more of a ridiculous idea to say like listening to a song is going to change everything about you and everybody else and what i really like about this movie is it plays on the idea of they thought they had that and then they didn't and then they lost it and they were so adamant on the idea of this is what our life has to be that in the end the discovery is as they say in the the final voiceover it wasn't the song itself that united the world it was the fact that everybody was playing it and this is such this wonderful tying together of both the statements of being excellent to each other and partying on is it's everybody doing the best with each other to save reality as they just party on by playing this song as one cohesive unit and they do and it works the end i love the hard out that this movie puts on the end of this because everything you just said is bubbling inside of me and and i'm on the brink like i love when movies just are like see ya like goodbye it's over i was gonna say mike you're a big hard out guy we learned that a lot on high school slumber party but you're so right like the message is so loud and clear without being preachy or or hitting you over the head so hard and it's just sort of felt like a reminder it's like remember like it's fun to do this and like it's okay to have fun and to be fun and safe and like not hurt each other and that whole all that stuff is just great and i also love the sort of quasi retcon not really though where we find out it was always wild stallions music right like not necessarily bill and tez but wild stallions will go on to unite everything right even in the in the original and it still is it's just the band grew and preston and logan i love that twist as well where it's like yeah bill and ted are preston and logan but so are thea and billy like it it still works the prophecy still works who are still technically Bill and Ted, being referred to as Little Bill and Little Ted when they were children. Yes, so great. I also think it's really, it's, it's just this wonderful aspect of, and it's a thing that so many people, myself included, had really been hoping we would get out of like Rise of Skywalker and the, the new Star Wars series, where the message that is being brought forth is there's not going to be any special one or two people who are going to step up to save the world. Wild Stallions and Bill and Ted and their music didn't save the world. It was everybody. It was everybody had to work together across the planet in order for life to get better. And it was just like, it's that, that like, the hero could be anybody aspect of, we're not waiting for some messiah to step up and, and fix everything. We need to do it ourselves and we need to do it now. Like, how great is it that we get a message that is like convoluted in something like the matrix but we get it so clearly in a bill and ted movie you know that we get like this profound or sort of seemingly profound existential answer from these two dudes 
in the most clear way. It's like, yeah, Neo's saying the same thing, but like, I can't really understand it all the time. <laughs> but he's been speaking for 45 minutes and there's a whole lot of like eight syllable words because the Wachowskis love to show you their vocabulary. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to get more of that on Keanu Club, right, Mike? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it might as well be time to get into our respective phone booths and back to our time zones ourselves here. I think we did a pretty good job today of uh, exploring this movie. I mean, it just came out, so it's really fresh in our minds, so I feel like that's why we may have gone on a little longer than usual. Well, I have one tiny bit for you, Mike. Did either of you watch the post credit scene? Oh, I didn't know there was one. Please explain it to me. I just was like, oh, I, I thought it was a hard out. No, well, it's it's a hard out. They go through the credits, one little post credit scene. It's not even story-wise, but it's just, it's so obviously, it's this great way to, to kind of end everything with the two, with Bill and Ted having fun. And it comes back to Bill and Ted, the old Bill and Ted in the retirement home. And it starts off, what I love is Bill asking, Ted, are you dead, dude? He says, no, are you? No. And then they're like, you know, oh, so on and so forth. Just a little bit of chatter and like, well, there's one last thing we need to do before we go. And they get up and they, they put on their guitars. And as old Bill and Ted, they just shred guitar solos for a good like 30, 45 seconds. And then it just ends with them like sitting down on the amps and just Bill going like, oh, oh, I need to sit down. <laughs> wow, I got to check that out. I think I still have time on my rental, so... Two things, Mike, before we, we get out of here that I wanted to mention. I thought, even though it's not that far in the timeline, but they still make that joke, I thought a great addition to the band if they went back in time and got 80s Eddie Van Halen, because that's who they always wanted. Oh, that would have been good. And then just really quickly, do you think we're getting any more? You know, I'm totally fine if we don't. I would like more, but I almost feel like that's being selfish at this point. Like, I should just be grateful and happy for what we have. I think this ends it on a great note. Uh, I quite literally love the last note of this movie. I'm good with it. I don't personally need or want more, but I mean, you know, I'll take what I can get. If, if it's the same creative team, there's really nothing to worry about is, is what I'm thinking. I agree 100%. Yeah, I, I don't think they have any reason to have to do another one. They they definitely stuck the landing with what they did as a trilogy. And I honestly think amongst the writers and, and Alex and Keanu, I feel like doing another one, it's not going to come from such a genuine place that something like this one did. That this, this had a lot of love behind it. I feel like doing a fourth one would either be forced or would be because they're getting offered a lot of money and that's going to be a real downfall for it. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the better situations where it took so long maybe to make a sequel. Like it's more poignant to the story where these characters are in their lives as opposed to say where you know, no offense, but where Han Solo is in his life, because he really just reverted back to being who he was before we met him. You know, I just didn't really feel like this, just because we've been sort of referencing him a little bit, I don't really feel like the Star Wars movies needed to start 20 years later again, but I feel like Bill and Ted did, you know? You know, even if we got it 10 years ago, but I'm saying there needed, like, that extra time is one of the sort of moments where it helped the movie, I think, as opposed to hurt it. Yeah. Okay, so let's do some most excellent plugs. You know, I mentioned earlier that the three of us were over on High School Slumber Party, which is Brian's podcast. I'm sorry, his iconic podcast. <laughs> Brian, we were over there recently talking Bill and Ted. What else can listeners hear over there most recently? This past Monday, as you mentioned, this gang of three got together and we talked Bill and Ted's excellent adventure over on High School Slumber Party, where I talk about other high school films. This Friday is a big day because it's our end of summer kind of bash, if you will. We're talking a goofy movie with my cousin Pumpkin. Uh-oh. We will finally get the results. Whatever the slumbers have decided, that's what he will be tattooing to his body. Something from a goofy movie. It won't be tattooed on the air while we're recording. I'm just going to reveal it to him at this point. Then we got to track down a good tattoo artist. Suggestions abound, please, because I said we'd pay for it with the high school slumber party expense account, which is dipping a little bit lower than usual due to pandemic, but I'm a man of my word just like him. I'm glad my Patreon dollars are going to this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the non-existent Patreon. Maybe I'll just open the Patreon just for this. Who knows? But regardless, people want to see it. It's being scarred to his body for life i can't wait to tell him what it is and we'll do a video of it and we'll have a nice revisiting thing he said he might have something i need to do for him to ensure him that this happens so that might be revealed on this friday's episode you'll have to tune in and look 
I'm set up with my schedule. I have a whole schedule, at least for the month. And so there's just one more I want to mention. The foodie films man himself, Kyle Reinfried, will be here. Well, not here. We'll be on High School Slumber Party. Uh, September 7th, Monday, we're going to open our school year that day with a film that him and I have talked about a lot, but we're going to talk about in a different context. The film is Almost Famous. So excited to talk that one on September 7th. Awesome. I look forward to seeing... What type of goofy pain stain your cousin gets <laughs> should be interesting. Yeah, awesome. So, Matt Delhauer, thank you very much for being a first-time guest. This was great. But, Matt, where can our listeners find you out there on the Internet? I know you have a podcast of your own. I do. Everyone is more than welcome to check out the Ginger Geek podcast. It's uh, available on iTunes. It's available on Spotify. Just about anywhere you can download uh, episodes of a podcast. The most recent one that came out two weeks ago is also Bill & Ted-themed because I like being timely with things when I put out an episode once every year or so. Talking about philosophy, Greek philosophy, and how it ties into the mindset of Bill and Ted and their wonderful tag of being excellent to each other. So they can find that there. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at mdelhauervo, as well as the podcast on Twitter at the G-N-G-R Geek Pod, because somebody actually had Ginger Geek Pod as their thing, and that surprised me, and I don't know why. Thank you for joining me for Facebook the music and all I have left to say is station 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 that's gonna do it for this most excellent episode of third times a charm I gotta thank Brian and Matt again for stopping by and please check them out online and listen to their podcasts High School Slumber Party, the Ginger Geek Podcast. For all things Third Times a Charm and all other shows I'm affiliated with, check out cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, and at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and write to me at 3 at cageclub.me, T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. Be sure to also check out, once again, just another announcement, don't forget, Keanu Club episode of Bill and Ted's Face the Music. Ted Theodore Logan, one of Keanu's most famous roles by far. So go listen to that. Bill and Ted face the music with the Ted to my Bill, if you will, Joey Lewandowski. We discuss more about this movie. We go more in-depth specifically about Keanu. You know, I love this one. It's a great time. Then, of course, catch Matt and myself over on High School Slumber Party talking about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure with Brian. It's a crazy Bill and Ted Network crossover event. Don't miss out. Until next time, everyone, be excellent to each other, party on, station, and Dennis McCoy forever. Three, that's a magic number. Three. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, they stubbing me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?